happening now that I can find the microphone happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 103 for August the 15th, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you from Oklahoma City, where Noah has recently left. His ark was built and the floods came. We had basically four days of a deluge. Um, I don't know how much rain, but it was crazy. Uh, normally, which, and that is great. I mean, it's, we, we've been back to school and, um, anyway, so we had a lovely picnic under the, uh, trees with, uh, you know, pizzas and whatever. And it was like, it was in the eighties. So that is not normal weather for Oklahoma, but we are not a weather show. I am the director of technology at the Cassidy school, and we are here to talk about technology news through an educational lens. And joining me as always is my co-conspirator uh, in ed tech analysis, Jason Neifer, up in Missoula, Montana. Jason, have the rains been coming to Missoula as well? Sadly, there has been no rain in Missoula. Luckily, we we actually last Friday, I keep thinking I've talked to you since then, but I haven't. It was one week ago tonight that I last we last spoke, but last Friday was the seventh warmest day in the history of Missoula weather keeping. So, um, it hit 105 here and, uh, you know, a hundred and something temperatures are not that unusual for Montana. I grew up in Great Falls, Montana, which is in north central Montana. And I've experienced 109. I experienced 111 day there once, uh, seven or eight years ago, but, um, 105 in Missoula, which is we are in, in the midst of the Rocky Mountains here. Uh, so relatively high elevation and western Montana, which is a slightly different climate than central and eastern Montana. That's a hot day. So, Luckily, we've been um, uh, down a little lower, uh, and and the highs have been in the the, the upper 80s, uh, which is not so bad. And we may get a couple of 70 days next week. But Missoula is where my office is located at, and that office is the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school, which is located on the University of Montana campus. And I serve as the assistant director and curriculum director of that organization. Uh, but enough about us. This is the EdTech Situation Room, where EdTech analysis meets tech news. And we have a lot of articles and interesting pieces of information to share with you tonight. But in case you're interested in finding the links later, we always put all the things we talk about, plus a little extra we can't get to at our website, edtechsr.com, uh, where you can go and follow all those links. And, and you'd mentioned this last week, Wes, and I think you're right because the document's starting to slow down. We have literally hundreds of pages of links uh, in that Google Doc, and it may be time to, to retire that one and start a new one. But yeah. speaking of those links, where should we start tonight? Well, um, let's start off with... Um Let's start off with Gizmodo. Um, August 15th, 2018, a university is putting 2,300 Echo Dots in student living spaces, and what could go wrong? Um, ooh, my son is trying to call me back. This is crazy. He's calling me twice in one day. He'll have to wait just a little bit. Um, so uh, this is the um, – in St. Louis – no, yeah, this is uh, in St. Louis. Um, I guess Arizona State University last year put Echo Dots out. Um, but this is St. Louis University. And interestingly, they've loaded up um, using Alexa's for business platform, over 100, you know, university-specific questions and answers, things like library hours, basketball games, campus events, and et cetera. Uh, and so they, you know, just feel like they're going to save their, their kids' time if they 
you know, are able to, to use their voices and, uh, and ask questions. So they're not going to allegedly be recording, which I don't know, we can debate whether that's actually true or not. Um, but they're not having individual student accounts loaded on the devices. It's a, a university account. If they don't want it and their, and their roommate doesn't, uh, they're just advised to unplug it. So uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, uh, that, that, is, that is good advice. If you do not want the Alexa to listen to you, unplug it. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think, Jason? Is this the future? Uh, will K-12 schools soon be putting uh, Echo or Google Assistant devices around to uh, just be, be helpful and, and help people uh, you know, get their questions answered more quickly? Um, I don't hate the idea of, of, of rolling out devices like this uh, for, for that precise purpose, right? That kind of assisting with things. And if you can imagine for a moment, you know, like if you want to know, and I think the article mentioned that, you know, what time does pizza stop delivering, um, which is an awkward way to phrase that, but, you know, what uh, what time does the gym close and that sort of thing. I mean, the, the article does mention privacy concerns, and I do feel as though that those are still ongoing questions as regards to, uh, well, really all the, the, the voice platforms, whether we're talking about Cortana or the Amazon platform, I won't use her name directly, the Divine Miss A is what we called her in the past, or the Google Now. But um, I guess the part of this that I am concerned about is that uh, there has been some evidence that the platforms are are hackable and could turn into to live mics. And, of course, their intent is not to record students. Uh, that would never be part of the plan. And I would give St. Louis University the, uh, you know, the basic credibility that they're not they're not engaging in, in, in very short-sighted thinking. But one of the reasons why, actually, uh, when the Generation 1 Alexas were um, going on or went on sale after they released the second generation, and they were practically giving away those those devices. And one of the things I love about uh, the uh, that the, the larger device, so that's the one with the integrated Bluetooth speaker, is that it's it's a beautiful Bluetooth speaker, right? Like, and I, I realize that there's no lack of Bluetooth options, but for the price that that they were releasing, the Generation Ones, uh, uh, especially refurbished ones, were down to forty, fifty bucks. That's a beautiful Bluetooth speaker for that price. But one of the things that I decided to do after we reported on, uh, this was eight or nine weeks ago, that uh, a, a couple had been having a conversation, which was uh, recorded and sent to someone else, right? And it just turns out that by some weird coincidence, they had said the exact string of words required to do that. And so I thought twice about putting that device in my office at work because as a school administrator, I'm often talking out loud about uh, student uh, student data, right? It, it became like a FERPA issue for me. And so even though I had plenty of opportunities to figure out a way to utilize that device in, in a positive way, I felt as though that it, it would have been, wouldn't have been responsible for me to put that um, in my office uh, for uh, my day job. So I don't think... I, you know, I, I don't think it's it's a terrible idea, but the one thing that I can't get past here is that I, in a world where you're dealing with 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 college kids, tell me how many of those kids don't don't have a smartphone, right? Like, and that that's integrated into the smart smartphone platforms, right? You don't have to like you don't need an external device because each one of these kids is probably hooked to their smartphone. So yeah. interesting idea. I think privacy implications maybe, but you know, I, I, we'll keep an eye out. I will try to put some links in, but there was some really interesting uh, digital citizenship and privacy discussions 
uh, actually around ISTE time at the end of June. Uh, Susan Bearden, who has a great book on digital citizenship, which was actually one of our school's summer book reads this year, um, talking with uh, Funny Monkey, um, which I'm going to have to get his name. Um, he is, I, I think he's the main guy around privacy for Common Sense Media, Bill Fitzgerald. Yeah, his Twitter handle is Funny Monkey. Isn't that great? I know him by his Twitter handle more than I know him by his real name. That tells you where I <laughs> A lot of the time. Um, but they were talking about, you know, really serious issues around FERPA and privacy and, you know, the fact that I had toyed with an idea and I didn't have funding for this to pull it off. But I thought, how fun would it be to put, you know, some kind of smart assistant in the classroom and have, you know, students asking it questions, trying to stump it, but then also really having a visible experience with the march of AI and artificial intelligence, because we definitely see um, the, the rapid advances in AI, you know, through smart assistants and, and especially speech to text and, and that kind of thing. But um, there's a lot of reasons not to do that. There are some organizations out there. Uh, probably supported by some of those tech companies that are selling uh, said smart assistant devices, you know, trying to, to promote that. But these are definitely consumer devices. You know, there's not any kind of, of FERPA clearance or, or whatever. And I, I really, I really don't think that, you know, any student is going to, you know, have their privacy and their data irreparably grabbed because, you know, there's a smart device somewhere. Right. But these are issues that do have legal, you know, legal aspects. And so I would right. point others to Bill Fitzgerald and Susan Bearden, and possibly we'll get some other links that we can put in the chat um, about that. So right. interesting, though, college is a different world than K-12. And, you know, what goes in the dorm is different than what goes in the classroom. Right. Well, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that this was the crux of my dissertation research, right? I put an intelligent personal assistant in the hands of middle school students in science classes, and um, we empowered uh, the control or the um, the treatment groups to utilize. Uh, in this case, it was um, a Siri uh, as a kind of an empowerment platform to help answer questions and pieces. And, you know, my research didn't find any statistically significant results suggesting that it made any difference either way. And so I, I think uh, I understand the lure of intelligent personal assistance as a, you know, as a revolutionary tool for empowerment, right? Like I, I understand that. And to be honest, I, you know, I interact every day with some variety of intelligent personal assistant, particularly in my home, since I have a number of these smart speakers uh, 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 littered throughout my, my home. But, uh, you know, I it, it, this technology is still pretty shallow of the kind of depth I think it's going to be required before it really becomes indispensable to a, a, a typical user, especially a student. Have you found a good website to follow that really keeps track of like the new features and what you should be trying out with your Google Assistant? Um, if anybody has, um, shout out to Peggy George, who's in our in our chat room. And I don't actually know, Peggy, do you have a smart assistant yet? Um, I'd be interested in that because I'm, you know, always always just interested in what what's going to be better. I've been playing more with. Um, because I have some on different floors, you know, stopping a podcast, you know, resuming it on another right. one. And then even with news, um, seems to be getting a little bit better with that. Um, the one thing I have learned because that, like, if you're in a podcast and it doesn't track, you know, cause I've even had it with my, with my phone and I'm, I'm pleased by the way that the iPhone, which I've you know gone back to after my nine months Android affair, um, you know, it, it will pick up the podcast and play them pretty well. Um, in terms of, you know, resuming, but you can say how much time is left 
and then you can do the math. I, I don't know what the right uh, language is. It's where it's like the Harry Potter spell, you know, to be able to say, what's the timestamp? Because that's really what I want to know is like, what timestamp am I at? Um, but I, I love being able to use my voice to forward, fa- you know, or, or rewind, you know, so, oh, wait a minute, I just missed that, you know, tell, tell it, go, go back 60 seconds, or the ads are coming up, so I forward, you know, 60 seconds, 90 seconds, whatever. Right. Um, so, and, and I don't, I don't know if we're really all getting that in education right now, but using our voices as input devices is absolutely you know, a, a, a wave of the, of the present and a huge wave of the future. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's powerful and it's just, you know, just gonna, just gonna keep it getting better. So Peggy says, yes, she has the infamous Madam A and it came with her new Kindle fire. So very good. Where would you like to go next, sir? Okay, I'd like to do maybe a little potpourri of, 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 of interesting hardware articles that uh, both uh, Wes and I have been tracking throughout the week. First, um, uh, this week in Mac hand-wringing, um, apparently the new Mac Pros 2018, there's a report of a consistent number, uh, or I'm sorry, a consistent report of speaker issues with the MacBook Pro. This is the very expensive new uh, hardware free refresh that was this year. Um, I would still expect that, that as, as there there are other announcements later this year that there might be a very exciting new Mac, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there will be. But it's like Apple can't really seem to catch a break here, that they fixed the, the butterfly keyboard issue seemingly in the new release. But now there's a apparently a significant number of MacBook Pros that are having crackling audio issues. And that's one thing that I can say from, from my history as a Mac user and Mac owner, that usually the audio was a very premium experience with the mobile, so that uh, it's sad to hear. Um, and in fact, Wes, have you seen, have you actually, I haven't even touched one of the new MacBook Pros. Have you had the opportunity to see one yet? I have not. In fact, I, I had to purchase some uh, Apple TVs and other things today, uh, today, and I ended up being able to do it at um, Best Buy. There's no educational discount on those. Um, so I was avoiding the Apple Store and all the you know busyness down there at the mall. That would be my best place to, to get that. So I have not. Sure. Um, and then another uh, very interesting uh, article that uh, I think both Wes and I pointed to. This is from Forbes um, on August 12th. HP, Dell, Microsoft stay ahead of the MacBook Pro in three different metrics. And this actually does a pretty good job of, of, of talking a little bit about, I think, things that are very real differences between the, the available Mac hardware right now and Windows hardware. And, and honestly, at least two out of the three of these are things that I, I just don't understand why why uh, the Mac doesn't go in this direction. So the crux of the article is is that here we are in 2018, and in my mind, it's very clear that, you know, 10 years ago till about three years ago-ish, in the hardware race, really, uh, I, I thought Apple was kicking everyone else's butt, right? But here we are, and there seems to be a lot of stagnant uh, a hardware on the Apple side. And this particular article from Brooke Crothers suggests that there's three ways that uh, the PC hardware, especially the high-end PC hardware of the likes of HP and Dell and to a, a, another extent Lenovo are offering. Um, and here are the three things they seem to be missing. And so, Wes, I'll stake these to you as questions about whether or not these hardware pieces make a difference. So first piece, 
the vast majority of high-end PCR hardware now has either face recognition or fingerprint ID. And so for me, um, the uh, Surface uh, book that I use at work has what's called a Windows Hello camera. It recognizes my face and does a pretty good job. I've actually even you know, stuck big pictures of me in front of it and other chubby bearded dudes, and it doesn't seem to mistake the you know average chubby bearded dude with the special chubby bearded dude. But um, that that is it is a big convenience, and I do like hardware that has that feature. So does that make a difference to you, or is that something that you wish were available on the Apple side? I don't think it's to get really quick with my with my password, but I definitely do know that biometrics and the advance of that is an important part of uh, where we need to go and what we need to to see improved. Um, but no, it's not a that that particular feature. The I think the next one, which is the hinge, is a little bit of of the bigger deal for me. So um, you know that's. It, it, it certainly seems like it would be time for Apple to do something disruptive um, and something innovative with its line. And, you know, that's what we're ho- that's what I'm holding out or hoping for is going to be some kind of of hinged, you know, all in one or some, something that brings brings together a touch interface, you know, along with the laptop. Right. And, and for me, the thing that I've always thought curious is that I think back to the original iPhone announcement uh, by Steve Jobs in 2007, and you know, he kept talking about, you know, touch is the future. And, of course, he uh, one of the big things that he contributed to smartphones was eschewing the, the stylus as opposed to utilizing the finger as an input device. And, of course, that now dominates uh, the way we, we interact with uh, uh, touchscreen devices, right? Very few devices come with a stylus, and instead you're expected to use your finger. And I've always thought it was quite curious that Mac just really never went into this direction. And I've actually, you know, seen, demonstrated, you can buy touch monitors to plug right into um, a a Mac desktop or as a secondary monitor on, on a Mac laptop. And even if you have the touch, like the operating system, other than a couple of the, the, the design features that they were kind of stolen from iOS, like there is really no use there for, um, for touch, but what, what is a touch interface a big deal for you? Do you think that would be really revolutionary on the Mac side? I mean, I, I think so. I think um, we, we had some nice discussions this week in a workshop about iPad and annotation apps, and we've got the new Lenovo um, touch tablets that allow you to use your number, number two pencil with graph, you know, any graphite pencil yes. as the stylus. Um, I mean, that's again, that's, that's part of the future. So natural input, being able to use our voice, being able to draw. Um, you know, use a finger. It's the workshop. Uh, my wife led a seesaw workshop today, and uh, one of the teachers, you know, on her MacBook Air was, you know, trying to touch your screen. I mean, it's just the, a natural thing when you're right. used to using touch on the iPad. I'll say, as a related aside to this article, this is one of the most irritating web pages I've been on in a long time because the Brightco video that they want to show you has no way of actually trying to move it. It or get rid of it, and right. it covers um, the bottom left chunk of the screen. I actually tweeted Forbes and told them I'm sure they're going to listen to me, but you know how, how irritating that was. But anyway, so interesting article. I don't. I mean, this. The, the, are you familiar with Brooke, Brooke Carruthers? Is that somebody you followed before? No, that's that. It sounds like a. P, it, it's a PC guy, right? I mean, I don't think he spends much time at all on a Mac. So. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think the big deal here is just the hinge. So, uh, but we're going to see Apple respond, right? I mean, Apple's not just going to, they haven't been resting on their laurels and what they tend to do 
with many things is they tend to see what happens in the marketplace and then try to come in and, you know, really move things uh, ahead quite a bit. So, right. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And the last article I want to cover, and I think we might have even mentioned this before, but uh, the, the story keeps evolving over time. But there's been a lot of rumors in the last four weeks that uh, the the Chromebook and really it depending on which article you read, it's either the Google Chromebook. So what I'm speaking of is the Chromebook Pixel or it could be several Chromebooks, which uh, is more interesting to me. They're working on something that's kind of like the Mac boot camp concept where you can take a Mac and load a copy of Windows and be able to dual boot between the two. And I'll admit, and, and again, I my main Chromebook, uh, my daily driver or a daily carry, if you will, to apply a, a, a term from another group of, of, of uh, kind of nerdy folks is that is, is a Chromebook Pixel, or I'm sorry, a Chrome Pixel Book, which is the 2017 uh, or early 2018 released uh, a, a new Chromebook. And, and I love it. I have not used a, a, a computer I have, I have loved more in the past 10 years. It's, it's really changed the way I view things, and now I spend most of my time on a Chromebook. But I'll tell you, there are... Uh, just a few applications. One of them is a vector editor when I do uh, vector edits, uh, which is what I do for logo work and other pieces when I design graphics for my day job. Um, that's one. And then finding a good, not pay for a uh, PDF signer, which I do quite a bit uh, for, for stuff I do in the office. I, I would love to be able to dual boot um, windows on my Chromebook. And you PDF sign with a, some kind of a Windows app? I do. Um, it's Foxit Reader is the is a PDF reader that's a common alternative, and it has a beautiful signature uh, feature. Have you used DocHub? I, I have, but it costs money after X number of signatures. Yeah, that's true. No, you're you're right. Tell me, tell me the name of the one you use then. The uh, Fox, Fox the Foxit Reader um, on on PC. I believe it's also Mac too, but uh, okay. it's it's my preferred uh, a PDF alternative to Acrobat. But what the way uh, Fox is super great because it, it's a very premium uh, or it has a lot of premium features. But uh, the free version is 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 uh, good enough with all the premium stuff I use. So it's what I use to sign. PDFs and it's also uh, the boss asked me to sign PDFs on his behalf quite a bit with that as an as as a, a alternative, but you know this notion of of carrying around a you know a laptop that has both on there I'd probably spend 80 85 percent of my time on the the Chrome OS side of that but it's an enormously interesting prospect and what's happening now is that the other articles that 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 have hinted to this say that it might be available on multiple Intel Chromebooks or Intel based Chromebooks to where it could just become a common feature that as a power user you can dual boot um, a, a Windows on that so something to keep an eye on um, it, it in my mind it's probably more of a power feature uh, use as opposed to something you roll out in a lab, for example. But it it still is is a is a very interesting prospect. Awesome. Let's see. Uh, how about uh, this? this? Is from the New York Times. This is a great article. Uh, New York Times today, August fifteenth. Um, are targeted ads stalking you? Here's how to make them stop. Um, of course, a great digital citizenship conversation to talk with students as far as how the world works with social media and where the product, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I learned reading this article that on your iPhone in the privacy settings under advertising, uh, you can reset something called your um, tracking identifier. 
and that resets um, how you're how you're tracked. There's also a uh, button to um, um, be able to limit the, the amount of tracking. It talks about you know deleting cookies periodically. Um, big thing I didn't know in this article is that Google actually on the Play Store evidently has deleted most ad trackers, which I, I didn't realize. One of the one of the reasons I do love you know the what is it the extensibility that I have with my my laptop versus you know a mobile device is being able to to run uBlock Origin ad blocker and you know being able to do other kinds of customizations and it's it's frustrating. Um, you know, to have to to have to watch ads on on Apple TV. You know, as far as YouTube and being able to do the same thing here. So um, it uses the term stalker ads. I don't know if we've heard of that term. If that's part of our lexicon, um, but that's this idea that like you you know look for a blender or you look that you're going to get a new grill and you're on one website and then suddenly you're seeing that on your smartphone and you're seeing it you know in Instagram on Facebook and, and these different places because you know these advertisers have these different tracking you know code. Uh, right. scripts that, that allow them to, to know who you are and, and track you across platforms. Um, so it, interestingly, the, um, the ad, you know, quotes a, a marketing guru saying, well, what would you rather have spray and pray ads or, you know, targeted ads you might be actually interested in. So are stalker ads an, an issue for you, Jason? And how, how do you think this would fit into conversations with kids about digital citizenship other than just the irritation of it? Oh, well, well, first I, I have a real mixed feeling about about targeted advertising, right? Like I, I I get, I mean I get the creepiness factor of it, right? And I get that people don't want to feel tracked because obviously people are building detailed profiles of users to sell things to them. But I also do believe that I'd rather be served an advertisement in something that I'm interested in as opposed to something that I am not interested in. And uh, you know I I. I sometimes I feel like the ads maybe aren't as intelligently uh, aimed at me as they could be. For example, like once I've purchased a tent, I don't need to see a hundred ads for tents for the next two weeks because I've already purchased a tent. Instead, they should probably be trying to sell me sell me tent steaks or uh, you know a, a backpack or um, you know dried food or. Uh, if they knew me really well, uh, pads for the blisters on my feet that inevitably show up after I use that tent, right? Uh, so, like that, that that's all part of that. But I mean, I, I do think that that there's clearly something I think a little more sinister than good-hearted attempts to to sell me stuff, right? I do think the detail profiles are are being built on me as an end user, and you know I have mixed feelings about that. But you are correct, Dr. Fryer, that. Like, like this is the crux, I think, of good digital citizenship conversations, because I do think we to, to understand that the Internet runs on advertising and that that is targeted advertising and that, you know, information's being used about you to be able to to build those profiles. I think that's a, a, an important piece of this. Um, I I wish I'd remember this now. It just it literally slipped my mind when I thought about mentioning it to you now. But I've, I've had a couple ads in the last couple of weeks to be quite frank, that were a little creepy, um, that the ads themselves were things that I wasn't directly looking for. Maybe, uh, it, and I can't remember what it was now, so maybe it was purposely was looking for, I was putting up in what's called, it, 
incognito private windows that had no tracking on it, or maybe I was only thinking about buying that and it suddenly appeared in those pieces. But, you know, I think those are very effective, uh, uh, for better or for worse. And that, uh, you know, that I, I understand why people are creeped out by it. Well, we want to talk a little, uh, social media updates or, or hacker dystopia. Um, well, they're, they're so interrelated. Uh, let's start with, let's start with social media stuff and then we can jump into the kind of darker stuff. So, okay. uh, first and foremost, um, uh, first, Ars Technica and every, basically everyone else, uh, reported that, uh, Alex Jones, the InfoWars guy, uh, a very, um, well, he would call himself uh, alt-right, uh, very extremely conservative commentator, has been essentially banned from Twitter, um, uh, uh, for urging people to, uh, uh, to keep, uh, I think the term was battle rifles at hand or something like be ready for the coming war kind of thing. And, um, so obviously, you know, that's, uh, for first amendment advocates, that is obviously quite concerning because even unpopular speech is, is protected speech. Although there's obviously some lines that, that people may draw. In fact, even the Supreme court has to say that not all speech is truly protected. So violent, uh, uh, or, or dangerous speech from a standpoint of, of creating physical harm or conditions for physical harm can clearly be regulated. But the other thing I want to talk about in regards to that is that there's an enormously fascinating article from New York Times a couple of days ago that talks about like how tough these discussions are at you know uh, Twitter. Right. Like they're having to figure out a way to obviously respond to broad criticisms that social media is giving a voice um, to, you know, the uh, um, uh, 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 voice to the uh, uh, to those that wouldn't otherwise have access to a voice for maybe for good reasons. But at the same time, you know, it's pretty hard to to say that you are a, you know, a platform for all to speak to the world when you're picking and choosing who has access to that broader, uh, broader microphone. So um, first, uh, any thoughts related to the banning of, of, of uh, uh, loud, but perhaps, um, you know, uh, alternative voices uh, from platforms like Twitter? On a personal note, I'm really glad to see the response to InfoWars and, and Alex Jones. I think it, it's totally deserved because he has been in flagrant violation of community guidelines and terms of service and all of those kinds of things. One of the, and I'm trying to think of the source. It's one of the, one of the podcasts that I listened to. Um, it may have been on the daily, but I'm not sure. Um, they were anyway, I was listening on the Google home and they were pointing out that, you know, Facebook and Twitter and these groups, these are private companies. They do not have to respond the same way a government agency does. I mean, there are things that they have to take down in certain countries, you know, for instance, in, uh, in Germany, um, certain things that would reference the Nazi party or, you know, deny the Holocaust or things like that are actually against the law and they have to, they have to take those down as a private company. But, uh, Facebook, you know, with Zuckerberg, you know, trying to, Almost, you know, well, kind of say that, you know, well, values of the United States and, and, um, you know, these kinds of freedoms, they don't have to do that. I mean, they could, they could censor and, and do, do things quite differently than what they're, what they're attempting. I mean, it's, uh, we've talked before on the show about the difficulty in identifying bad actors. That's one of the biggest challenges with, with fake news and with any, any kind of, of, uh, censorship, um, that would happen. 
people expect there to be some magic, you know, silver bullet. Um, AI is going to save us. There's going to be code that's going to save us. I've been listening to some shows that, have, you know, people that are angry that, you know, Zuckerberg and others created these, Dorsey created these platforms without thinking about this and that, you know, that this could happen. Um, I don't know. I, I am glad that we're in the, the messiness of addressing this. I think that uh, voices of the people are are important in terms of, of outcry. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's really interesting how these things overlay internationally in terms of cultural right. norms and in terms of the laws of other countries. And so um, I, I, I do think that it's good for, you know, companies from the United States to be reflecting uh, values like, you know, from the Bill of Rights and things like that in terms of freedom of expression. But I, um, you know, it, I don't see them going down a slippery slope with this. Um, but I think what it is going to continue to do is is help hold their feet to the fire about well what is your you know what are your terms of service and what do they really mean what are your community guidelines you know it's kind of like at school right. where if you've got a dress code and it's not being enforced you know that creates a lot of resentment almost more resentment on the part of everyone you know than than if it was being enforced and you were you know having integrity with what you say you're going to do so. Um, you know, I'm I'm glad for them to take action. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned, but it's just like a seven day ban for Twitter is all. So that's right. a really light slap on the wrist. And I hadn't realized that the Facebook ban was just a 30 day you know ban as well. I think there's not a time limit. I think for the ban that Apple did. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's uh, th- this. I'm I would love, and I don't have the bandwidth personally to be investing with the digital citizenship conversations at schools. We're kind of kicking off and we're having some personnel changes. Um, but this is exactly the kind of question that I would love to, to have more of for students and teachers to be able right. to grapple with because there's not a single answer. Um, and it's important for people to recognize, okay, First Amendment, legal rights, but, you know, private company and what can you do? Right. There's some really important um, distinctions that, that we should understand. Um, but we should also you know, recognize the, the importance of our voice and expressing our ideas and how we can be a part of that marketplace of ideas in helping shape all this. Right. Precisely. And, you know, and, 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 and I think we've mentioned this in the past, but, you know, for those of you that are considering uh, uh, putting or having these discussions in your classroom and, and I'm not sure if it really matters what you teach. I think they belong probably in almost all areas of the curriculum. But the best part about discussing this is there are no real answers to this. We're still building the plane as as we fly. And that's really what the, the next article uh, is about. This one was really good. And I it's so good that I have actually threw it on my Kindle because I want to uh, read it a little more deeply. But this is from Jeff Jarvis, who is uh, the co-host of This Week in Google on Twit. He's a professor of, of journalism at the CUNY New York Graduate uh, School of Journalism, and he's an enormously smart, insightful guy, and has written a number of great books that I think are, are worthy uh, of reading, uh, including one of my favorites is actually called Gutenberg the Geek. But um, there's a uh, he writes uh, in the Atlantic a couple of days ago about the nature of how uh, uh, that platforms are not publishers. And he makes a careful distinction based on the word, the way journalism works about how Facebook and Twitter are not publishers; they're platforms. And one of the things that he argues is that we are starting to see. And he's almost referring to my trademark term, the technology correction, which I I will uh, 
still continue to work hard to make a, a a real thing. But he said that, you know, this Alex Jones stuff that's going on, it is a recognition and a balancing act that, that's going on uh, that, that attempts to, you know, reconfigure the free-for-all that that we've been engaged in, in in the last, you know, 15 years on the Internet that we've never really come to terms with and that this is, this is going to help the long-term viability of all these technologies because when you give everyone the power to do everything everywhere anywhere, why then you know that that that's going to come with consequences right and you know for me that you know even though there are obviously plenty of really uh, uh hateful disastrous uh uh really uh, hurtful view uh, channels on youtube for example there's also you know dozens of channels that that i personally watch that have wonderful nerdy esoteric content that would have no audience otherwise right like there's no way that even the the most public of public access channels is going to dedicate a half an hour a week to this guy in Jersey that likes to take 100-year-old tools and refurbish them using his metal shop, right? But I love that stuff, right? That's It's interesting and, and neat. But, you know, we have to find a way to be able to give everyone access so that you can, you know, really publish and use your voice to your heart's content while not giving unintended microphones to people who have uh, end goals that are anywhere from undesirable to downright apocalyptic. We may have to pick up this article next week after I have a chance to read it because I actually did not get to see this one before the show. But um, I think there's some really, really important, just, you know, ideas to draw out of it. Number one, I think it was on the Twit podcast a couple weeks ago. I mentioned um, uh, Web uh, Futurist. Is that her name? Um, I mentioned her last last week. Um, and um, anyway, they were talking about old, I think that was where it was. They were talking old media versus new media. And so we have some real, you know, differences of opinion and power struggles happening between the Silicon Valley uh, platforms, which have emerged, Facebook, Twitter, you know, and then old school industry, you know, New York Times, Los, you know, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Atlantic. I mean, anything that's, a, that's an old school publisher. Um, I, I definitely agree with, I think, what you're saying with in terms of like long tail Voices like, yeah, uh, people should be able to, to be out there, um, you know, talking about lots and lots of things. It'll be interesting when I get to that geek of the week talking about Charlottesville and, and some of the, you know, white supremacy and, you know, some of that, some of that kind of stuff. But it's in general, right? Giving people the freedom to talk about the things that they want and to be able to share. I mean, that's a fundamental, basic, amazing thing about the internet. Wow. Look, I have a website. I have a web page. I have a blog. Right. You know, you can read what I said and, you know, you could read it in China or you could read it in Russia. You know, that whole thing about the open web. But I think, you know, again, not having read the article, just, just having read the title and, and the subtitle there. Uh, when you become such a powerful mainstream shaper of people's ideas and perception and news, you know, the algorithm, because Facebook has a couple of different, you know, elements to it here, right? Yes, anybody can create a profile on a page, et cetera. But the algorithm itself is value laden and it decides what are we going to emphasize and what are we going to, you know, put at the top of people's right. uh, feed. And so in that sense, they're not a publisher in the traditional way we think of a publisher like the New York Times, but they definitely are shaping our radar screens of what we are taking in 
at what we're seeing and they're making value decisions in the same way that a newspaper, you know, decides what to put on page one and what kind of a headline to write about an article. There's definite, you know, normative uh, judgment that's used there. Um, Facebook is doing the same kind of thing with its newsfeed and the way it either emphasizes or de-emphasizes articles. And so, yeah, I'm going to be excited to, to dive into that article and perhaps we can, you know, pick it up uh, a little bit greater length because I think this is it's fascinating right and I'm I'm always coming back to uh, Neil Postman right I'm a huge fan of Neil Postman I probably should reread Postman it's something I should like to do on an annual basis but uh, his book Technopoly um, Amusing Ourselves to Death Teaching as a Subversive Activity these are fantastic books for not only educators but but anyone in society and he was writing you know for an internet not for an internet age, for a television age, and right. really a, a sharp critic uh, following in the footsteps of Marshall McLuhan of, you know, folks that are going to just be the passive sheep kind of being led to, you know, whatever, you know, people are going to be putting on television and paying for and, and all of that. So um, I think that, you know, in this environment of um, the new publishers and the algorithms, it's, a, it's kind of astonishing to me that we still are almost a TV culture where we're, we're just, I mean, what is Facebook saying? What is Twitter saying? You know, and those mainstream media channels. I would love for us to become better filterers of information and, and to, and to distill and make choices about the voices that we do want to listen to and not just have it be so mainstream. I wonder if, you know, in, in a future iteration of society, that will be a characteristic. It won't just be what the mainstream, all the channels are talking about, so to speak. So anyway, thanks for that article. And I'm, I'm yeah. going to look forward to diving well, into it. Yeah. We should maybe uh, uh, do that at a future date. Cause you like, uh, the logarithm is really important. Now that I think about that, you're, you're absolutely correct that, that that is a form of, even if it's automated, it's a form of editorial decision-making. It is. It is. Interesting. Okay, right. shall we dive into some hacterdom? Yeah, there's some pretty pretty good articles here. Um, you know, we, we regularly talk security, and, of course, being a technology director, uh, <clears throat> that is just, you know, one of the things that's on my radar screen quite a bit. Um, I put these under, or I put a couple of these under the headline Hacker Dystopia. Uh, so this is from Defense One, which uh, covers lots of military news from August the 13th. Russian military spy software is on hundreds of thousands of home routers. And this is the VPN filter vulnerability that we talked about a number of weeks ago. And <clears throat> this was... I mean, in the same way that it was unprecedented when James Comey, before he was fired, you know, actually said under congressional testimony, yes, everyone should put a cover over their camera um, on their laptop because it's quite easy for hackers to be able to, you know, take it to um, hijack that and be able to surreptitiously record video. That was like a shocking thing. It was pretty shocking for the FBI to come out, I think, in May and tell everybody, please restart your router because... Right. Hundreds of thousands of routers worldwide have been compromised in a multi-stage, multi-tier hack, which not only um, allows them to participate in denial of service attacks and, you know, be part of the zombie botnet, but it also would allow them in later stages to completely capture all the data traversing your network and be able to steal your identity and your bank account and all this kind of stuff. So, 
Um, some of the articles that I w- have read talk about, you know, the Ukraine. And I don't even know if we got to this article a few weeks ago that was kind of saying sort of the Ukraine is prologue for what it, Russia is going to probably be doing in, in the future in terms of, of cyber right. attack. Um, but this is just saying there's, you know, more routers than, than ever. And it's this, this is a big issue. It's not something that, you know, we're going to see consumers probably responding to. And we just don't, we're not buying a router every year. You know, it's, it's not a piece of equipment that we update very often or we replace very often. So, um, are, are you or any members of your family on that list of the VPN filter, you know, router vulnerability, Jason? And, um, what, what do you think? Are we, uh, I'm, I'm thinking I need to invest in, in my, you know, home in the hills where, where I'm going to have uh, several weeks of food and be ready for the solar flares or the cyber attack. But I'm probably just reading, you know, too many of these dystopian hacker articles getting right. ready for the show each week. Well, I mean, I, I think part of this goes back to, and we've talked about this a couple of times in the past, is that the massive proliferation of net-connected devices um, is comes with a lot of costs, right? Like whether we're talking about societal costs in regards to distraction or, or privacy or a more practical cost that, you know, one of the reasons why um, – you know, some of those devices have become so cheap is because the software they're utilizing to run those devices is uh, 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 something that was very inexpensively picked up that 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 has relatively little function. It also uh, likely is never updated and uh, has vulnerabilities in it because not a lot of time or investment went to the development of that software. So if you have, you know, I I checked the other day for grins and giggles. I now have 30 uh, uh, devices on my network at home, of which only maybe uh, six or seven of those are a mix of computers, cell phones, and tablets. That means that I have a bunch of other stuff on my network, and that includes a number of smart plugs now. It includes a number of uh, uh, smart speakers in my home. It's a, it's a, some uh, Chrome uh, cast devices. It's an Apple TV and a couple of things hooked up to my television. But I would say that I know that I have a couple of devices on my network that I bought uh, that were extremely inexpensive, that were practically giveaways on Amazon, that work really well with Alexa or Sorry for saying her name. Um, in fact, my mic just glowed at me a little bit, like it was winking. Um, that uh, uh, or the the Google Home or Siri or Cortana that works with all those 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 systems, and you know uh, the the app barely works. Um, in some cases, it has extremely poor English, which means it was probably translated English, maybe not even intended for this market. Those are dangerous devices, right? I should take those and maybe now I think about it, maybe tonight, take those off of um, uh, off of my network because you know, those are easily hackable. And it's part of the reason why, and, and I'm sure, Wes, you have a, a, some strict uh, rules in your district or your school about what, uh, you know, what can go on the network or what can't, but it, 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 there is a potential there, you know, to, to open up holes that you're, you're unintended. So, you know, buyer beware. Some good uh, chat with Peggy about this in the chat room. Um, you know, once they said restart, uh, the, I heard a, a podcast. Um, there's actually a great, let me see if I can uh, pull it up. Cyberwire podcast is really, really good. I think it's McAfee sponsored. And they had one of the top cyber researchers for Talos, which is, I think, the group of Cisco that's really, you know, big on the, on the cybersecurity front, talking about how that was really, um, you know, trying to do something, was saying restart your routers. Uh, but that would supposedly disable the second and third tiers of this very sophisticated malware. 
but it doesn't get rid of the actual malware itself, which is resident on these devices and could still be re-enabled. So I think you actually have to reset the factory settings in order to get rid of, um, you know, the, the root of malware. And anyway, it's just, uh, it's really pernicious or, per- I don't know, is that the right word, right, right way to pronounce that? So uh, definitely something to watch. And, um, you know, if you want to scare your friends, uh, you know, <laughs> Sharing that as, uh, as another article um, about, uh, you know, hacking dystopia. Um, on the same note, Quartz had an article, this was from back on July 18th, that hackers account for 90% of the login attempts at online retailers. So, again, to drive home how important it is to use a password manager that enables us to use a different password on every single site, um, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, get a password from one particular hack and then try and use it on as many retail sites as you can to see what you can, you can exploit is, is becoming the norm. And then this CNET article was probably the best one I read for this week. This is from August the 14th. Your smart air conditioner could help bring down the power grid. And so a lot of times when we talk about you know, scenarios for um, a power grid disruption, which, by the way, is a very reasonable thing to to happen. You know, it was 1859 when we had this massive coronal ejection solar flare that, you know, caused at the, the technology of the day, which was the telegraphs, you know, to have these arcing, um, you know, uh, sparks of, of electricity going across and you know, today would cause complete havoc if we had something at that level. Um, anyway, there's there's multiple ways that the power grid could be disrupted for a while. And so instead of thinking about hacking the actual grid itself and grid computers, um, hacked appliances could overwhelm the grid because uh, right now it's rather tenuous in terms of meeting uh, grid demand. Uh, we've had a smart thermostat here for a number of years now, which has been wonderful for our bill. But what that tries to do is limit the amount of electricity that's being demanded of the system because especially with air conditioning in the summer, but at other times, you know, the, um, the, the power grid responds almost in, not quite immediately because coal, coal fired, Power plants have to have to power up and and, and gear up, um, but basically it's saying that you know if a lot of smart thermostats are hacked, you know, saying hey I need my temperature to be set to 65 degrees or 50 degrees or something like that, you know, all day. Um, also, hot water heaters, um, you know, that that hackers could potentially use that to bring down the grid. So. Um, these are researchers that are publishing these findings to try to to raise awareness. Um, and, you know, they're, it's, they're saying attacking the grid using IoT devices is not as critical today as it would be in the future when high wattage appliances will become more common. This will give the grid operators a window to protect their systems against these type of attacks by operating the grid in a state that would not be affected. But it could be it, it could take a long time to recover as well. So I, I seriously have been doing enough reading about this kind of stuff that I am. Um, we, we have a, a new teacher at our school who is a nuclear engineer. He was in the Navy and, and did a lot with power grids. And he actually has a generator inside a Faraday cage so that he could survive an EMP and uh, had a really pretty fascinating conversation with him last week. So perhaps I've been, you know, hanging out with too many folks that are, 
thinking about this, but when you visit with people like that, that are very experienced and knowledgeable about the power grid and they're like, yeah, we're, we're ready to pretty much, you know, survive three or four weeks at home without electricity. And you're like, right. You know, I think I could survive two days. Maybe um, it just makes you think. And so that's uh, that doesn't, exactly translate to the classroom in terms of what we're going to try to, to tell students to do. I mean, emergency preparedness is important, right? We live in tornado world. You know, you live in, in oftentimes forest fire, you know, uh, areas. Um, so I don't know. It, this this whole line of, of thinking doesn't have as much direct tracking to the classroom, unless it is to think about emergency preparedness and, you know, kind of along the lines of, of a Y2K or something, you know, right. are we prepared? Um, FEMA is going to tell everybody to be prepared. You know, you ought to have flashlights. You ought to have a little bit of, uh, you know, food. Uh, you ought to have a little bit of water. And basically, most people don't have any of that. They just rely on being able to go to the store tomorrow to buy what they need. Right. Absolutely. And then one last thing that I want to mention, because it's 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 both fascinating and a little scary. So we've talked a lot about USB-C here on, on the podcast, and it's now, I mean, I, I prefer devices in my bag that are USB-C um, uh, uh, powered because I like be, I love being able to carry around a single cable that rules them all. And I have a, a high end, I was able to actually pick up, uh, several weeks ago, the, the, uh, library, I'm sorry, the library, the bookstore on my university campus was recently, uh, closed in favor of bringing in an external vendor. In this case, it's, it's, uh, Barnes and Noble College that, that's taken over our, our bookstore at the University of Montana, and they put a bunch of stuff on sale, including a bunch of Apple accessories. And so I was able to get the big brick um, USB-C charger for the Mac, uh, for the Mac, which is a generic USB-C charger for half the price. So I spent like $35 for it as opposed to the kind of unreasonable 70%. But for those who haven't seen one before, this is a USB-C cable. Um, it looks uh, kind of like a, an older USB-C or a USB, uh, uh, a micro USB cable, except that it's, it's reversible and it, it feels a little more stable to me. But there's actually, the, the, this is a, a little more nuanced than just dividing power because as part of what USB-C standard is, is that it uh, uh, there's a negotiation that goes on between your device and the charger to determine how much power it can push through, and um, the, there's a decision made about how much it can accept in, and then it starts to deliver power. And so that that's a, a pretty nuanced and, and detail-oriented uh, functionality. But there's a great article that I, I'm citing this week from, um, and I've lost my ah, tech radar from um, August 9th says that there is a, uh, a, a theoretical way that a hacker could take a malformed USB-C charger and be able to hack your laptop with it because it is, it's more than just power and, 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 and bits of energy that's being traded across. There is actual data even in the charging process where that occurs. And unlike a more traditional power, uh, uh, in a laptop, for example, you know, this port is the port that rules them all. It can be data and power, a mix of both or video signals. So just another, you know, in, in case we're not paranoid enough, uh, that that's an interesting phenomenon. So USB-C. It makes me think, what are we, what do they call that when they, uh, for the ATM machines and, and point of sale when there's a skimmer, right? Oh, a skimmer, and yep. A yep. skimmer can, you know, grab your stuff. It makes me think, are we going to have people, you know, putting up surreptitious charging ports, you yep. know, here at the mall or on the, you know, on the street? Hey, you think you're getting a charge, but really we're just injecting you with malware. Right. So. right. Yeah. Yeah. So never know. 
All right. Well, um, anything else we would like to do before Geeks of the Week? Uh, let me see. There's a couple other kind of interesting pieces there. Uh, oh, um, so Fortnite, which we've mentioned here in the past, is currently the game rage. All the kids love the Fortnite. And I'm actually mentioning this for, for an interesting reason. Um, Fortnite is now released on Android, which is a, a big deal because that makes it compatible with a lot of interesting gaming devices beyond um uh, you know, beyond the, the iOS devices, which it is already available on iOS, but the people that make Fortnite made a very interesting decision, and they decided not to release Fortnite via the Google Play Store. And the reason why that's the case is because Fortnite, it, the game Fortnite's free, the reason why, or where, where they're making money and what costs money as a Fortnite player is you buy stuff in the Fortnite store, which allows you to dress your character, buy new, more interesting weapons, you know, the, the the core game itself is free, but you can actually purchase quite a bit. And there was gazillions of dollars made when Fortnite was first released on iOS um, via that process. Well, what you don't know is in the background of that is that when you, you know, sell something through the, the App Store on iOS or you sell something through the Play Store um, on Android, um, Apple or Google takes a percentage of that. That's how they make their money is they take a percentage of that. And so they kind of learned from um, the iOS situation, which is that they, you know, gave a big chunk of money to Apple as part of uh, the sales of the stuff in their store, and they decided that to take advantage of something which actually requires you to do a little hackering on your phone, they're going to offer it for a direct download to your phone, which means you go to their website, you download what's called the APK, that's a, a native Android application package, and the vast majority of phones allow you to go in the settings and say allow APK installs from uh, outside sources, so in other words, outside the Google Play Store, and I, I've, I've heard several references to this in the last week after this was announced, that in essence, they're teaching, you know, millions of Android users how to install stuff without the Play Store, right? Which is a, a very interesting, like, it's almost hearkening back to, um, you know, a desktop computer, right? Like, all those, there's tons of protections built into both Windows 10 and Mac OS to tell you something's dangerous when you try to install. I mean, that's been our, insta our software install model for, you know, 40 years in, in the desktop operating system world. And here we are kind of stepping back to that old school way of doing things. Now, let me be very clear. Installing something like that comes with a ton of risks. Um, I don't think Fortnite directly downloaded from the Fortnite website is a risk, but there are, are literally um, uh, 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 hundreds of thousands of sources to download APKs, including free APKs of software that usually cost you money, but that's also a way for a hacker to post a malformed APK that has, you know, nasty wear in it and then have that kind of sideload into your phone. So download or beware. Absolutely. Uh, one other one that I'll mention is this Google tracks your movements, like it or not. This was from the AP on August 13th. Um, I guess we could call this, you know, the week in hand wringing over privacy issues. Uh, interesting. Even when you've got your privacy uh, location history turned off, you know, it says Google has, takes a snapshot every time you open up the maps. They've got a pretty interesting map of the location of this reporter who tested this. And even, you know, when location services was off, you know, still track them and, and where they were. So I don't know. I think 
privacy is a relative term and, you know, for better or worse, using a smartphone today means that you are going to be subject to some level of, of inquiry by authorities who can subpoena or, or, or confiscate your device, you know, or, you know, folks that have access to the data that's in the cloud. Um, so right. Absolutely. Henry went on there. All right, sir. Well, what do you have for a geek of the week for us this week? So this one's pretty simple, but um, I so a, a little kind of uh, strategy I use at work. I, I have a desk job at work. I don't get to walk around a whole lot. It's part of my job. And one of the things I noticed when I left the classroom, and this is part of the reason why I wear a pedometer now. It's a Fitbit. Is that um, I you know I went from a job where I was walking around you know for five or six hours a day. I very rarely sat when I was a classroom teacher. I was always up and around. Even when lecturing, I would kind of walk around the room, you know, like the old Donahue show, and stick the mic in kids' face and. And, and encourage discussion and questions and, and in some cases argument. Um, well, I went to a desk job where I was sitting for eight to ten hours a day, and I, it, I noticed it almost immediately its impact on my health. But um, I like to get up every half an hour or hour and take a little stroll around the floor of my building to kind of keep things going and, and help my concentration and focus when I'm sitting down. Um, I do not have an Apple Watch, so I, I that will actually remind you to get up and walk around, and my Fitbit will do that as well. But I'm constantly setting timers during the day, uh, whether it's as a production productivity strategy, like sit down and it's called the Pomodoro technique. We've mentioned that it's in the past in the podcast, but it's 25 minutes of working with a five minute break and then a bigger break after four or five what's called Pomodoros. But I noticed the other day when looking for an online timer because I was on a cloud ready machine that didn't have Android apps that uh, there's a lot of great online timers. But this one's really nice and elegant. This is a uh, timer tab timer-tab.com it's a beautiful um uh, uh, uh timer that is simple it allows you to create or to use a youtube video as the uh going off piece so you can choose what the sound looks like in the background but i actually put a bookmark to this in my work chrome browser and the little icon or flavicon i think is what they're called uh in the piece actually shows a little countdown and a little round countdown clock in my bookmarks bar. So just a simple, nice, um, functional timer. And I know that online timers are a big strategy a lot for people with classroom management um, related to you know, showing people how long they have to complete a thing. And if you're using some of the old-fashioned ones like online stopwatch, this one's better. There's no advertising involved in it. And it's just a nice, beautiful tool. So that's timer tab at timer-tab.com. And you can copy and paste a direct URL link to an image and then have it there in your background. I just yes. uh, grabbed a Flickr picture from our uh, Colorado vacation and threw it in there. So pretty cool. Well, uh, I was just going to do one Geek of the Week, but I had to throw out a second one. My my second one I'll do first is uh, a photo of a solar coronal mass ejection. It says it's beyond comprehension. This is from Dig two days ago. Really doesn't necessarily have a connection, but just... I mean, it has the Earth to scale in the upper left corner of the picture. The sun is unbelievably big. So, yeah, thinking about solar flares and uh, our susceptibility to that. NASA actually just launched, um, I think, last week a rocket mission that's like over a billion dollars. It's a cost that's going to do a lot of uh, pretty in-depth analysis and perhaps warning. We don't get a whole lot of early warning when these kind of things happen. They, I think, come in a matter of days as far as, you know, when the, the northern lights are going to be affected. But 
I think that is just incredible how small the earth is in relation to that picture of the sun. Um, but the other one was a documentary that I just watched on PBS. It's called Documenting Hate, Charlottesville. We just had the year anniversary of um, the, the, you know, killing in Charlottesville uh, during the protest with, with the car. Um, but it really, um, so I guess, speaks to, you know, social media and technology and the ways in which fringe groups are able to connect um, and you know, what, what are we going to do about these bad actors and the ways in which, uh, you know, they're, they're able to, uh, utilize social media, I think, to the credit of, of police and the security forces. They did have, uh, protests, but, you know, no, no one was killed. And I think the levels of violence and things that just happened in Charlottesville this last week, um, you know, it, it, it didn't make the headlines, but, uh, it's a really good documentary and it's an ongoing series, uh, that PBS does. And I, Absolutely love Frontline and, and love their documentaries. So yeah. shout out to them. So, uh, Jason, where can people find you when you're not pontificating here on the EdTech Situation Room? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Um, I'm also the Northwest Council for Computer Education. Uh, I'm their tech-savvy administrator in residence. Uh, and, in fact, um, I'm working on some interesting projects now with those good folks. They're at, at ncc.org or blog.ncc.org. And registration for their February conference um, in fabulous Seattle, Washington, opens up probably sometime in the next week or so. So consider attending that. And then, of course, I'm here on the podcast once a week. What about you, Wes? I am still W. Fryer on Twitter and my blog, Speed of Creativity. I'm posting to eh, about once a week, um, not that often, but uh, we'll be continuing to hopefully update this year our digital citizenship website for the school, digsit.us. And um, not a lot of travel planned for this year. I was still was hoping there would be a, a, a STEM workshop in New York uh, in October, and I don't, we haven't gotten that finalized yet. So my, my EdTech consulting has gone down. But, hey, if you're looking for a keynote speaker or workshop presenter, don't forget that Jason Neifer and I are eager to share uh, some of, of, of the wonders as well as the more thought-provoking things that we probably ought to all be considering as educators, parents, uh, technologists, uh, at regional and national and other sorts of events. So please check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. You can generally find us here in the evenings at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, 3 a.m. UTC, if you happen to be on the other side of the big pond. And we want to thank, as always, Peggy George for joining us live and encourage everyone to stay savvy and stay safe until we meet again. Good night.